Oh, hey everyone, it's Tom here, and I want to welcome you to this episode 162 of Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, an episode recorded live on stage at the Easy Street Concert Hall in Collingwood in front of a lovely crowd, me chatting once again to the inspiring and decent and funny man that is the Greens MP for the seat of Melbourne, Mr Adam Bant. Because apparently you're not allowed to talk about climate change while the fires are burning. Well, when are we going to be able to talk about it, right? Because they're still burning, right? They're still burning and Sydney is still shrouded in smoke. And so what we're finding now is that we're the only ones who are taking on the government. And thanks so much to everyone who came out. Thank you to Adam for again joining me at the end of the year to reflect on the year that was. He did it in 2016 after the Trump and Brexit and Malcolm Turnbull almost losing year. And he very kindly agreed to do it again in 2019 to think about uh, what the fuck just happened and to you know give us a little bit of hope as we head into Christmas. It was a great conversation and uh, we got a whole bunch of time together, so I'm not going to take up too much of your time. I just want to say thank you to everyone who came along and turned out I chipped in some money for the tickets. All the funds raised went to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Please support them too if you can. Um, if you enjoyed this episode... Um, they do fantastic work. They're helping uh, refugees and people seeking asylum, and they deserve your support, particularly after this shitty, fucked-up, awful government repealed the Medivac laws and continues to uh, oppress and effectively torture people who come to us asking for help. You know the deal. Um, I also want to let you know that my 2020 stand-up comedy show is called Grandiloquent, and it's run at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival has just gone on sale. So it's on sale at the uh, Brisbane Comedy Festival and the Melbourne Comedy Festival. If you're in Adelaide, I'm bringing my show from this year. It's called Enough to the 2020 Adelaide Fringe. All the details are in the show notes, and I would love you to come along and see me yelling about the state of the world um, and entertaining you as well <laughs> in my trademark comedy style um come along and see me touring in 2020 adelaide brisbane and melbourne that would be great other cities there will be more uh different shows on sale coming to you at various times throughout the year stay tuned please join the uh, facebook group the like i'm a six-year-old facebook group that would be cool we're having a lot of chats there i'm giving you information and it's a good place to be and hang out and discuss and argue about politics and if you've got the means you can always support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash tom ballard Thank you again, Adam. This is a fantastic chat about the 2019 election, socialism, and whether or not Adam is a socialist, like me, the climate crisis, uh, the Labor Party's just fucking caving on coal and, and the real challenges of, of uh, climate change, and also Adam sets out his belief in and the possibilities of a Green New Deal for Australia. We also, there's a few laughs in there as well. We were laughing and learning and coming together and talking about what we care about. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, live on stage, this is Adam Band. All right, look, I want you to explain this to me like I'm a six-year-old, okay? Good evening, everybody. Would you please put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Tom Ballard! Hi, everyone! Hello, you hippies! <laughs> How you doing? You good? Thank you so much for coming along. Welcome to this live edition of Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, uh, my podcast where I talk to people about their politics and stuff, and we fix the world. <laughs> One clap, that'll fucking do. Thank you for coming along. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge that tonight we're meeting on the lands of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people, the uh, elders past, present, and emerging. This was, is, and always will be Aboriginal land sovereignty never ceded. 
I appreciate you coming out. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's the end of the year. We made it. <laughs> what a fu- tough crowd, Adam. <laughs> tough crowd. Did anyone attend the last time I did a live podcast with Adam Bent in this very room three years ago in 2016? You're back. Yep, it's been going well, hasn't it? What's your name? Neil. Hi, Neil. Uh, did you enjoy it last time, obviously? You obviously enjoyed it last time? Enough to come back. And you had to pay fucking money this time, didn't you? Uh, thank you for buying tickets. All the money is going to, all the proceeds will be going to the Asylum Seeker Resource Center. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Adam insisted on that. Obviously, I wanted to keep my fee because I got fired from the ABC. I need to make a living. There's a child here too. Hello, child. <laughs> hey, mate, what's your name? Benjamin, lovely to meet you, man. Why, why, why are you here? <laughs> it's lovely to have you along. Did you, was it your choice? Okay, blink twice if you want to leave. <laughs> so nice of you, man. Do you, do you know about politics? No? <laughs> well, strap yourself in, mate. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to chat to our wonderful guest for around about a, an hour or so, maybe a little bit less, and then there might be some time for some questions. I'd love to hear from you guys if you have any questions for Adam. Uh, that would be great. And uh, I don't think you need to know anything else other than like jumping into this bad boy and uh, welcoming this guy back to the stage. Of course, he won re-election once again for a fourth term for the seat of Melbourne in the electorate that we're in right now. He had uh, a primary vote of 49.3%. That is a swing to him of 4.7%. He is everybody's favourite inner-city raving lunatic. <laughs> Give it up for Mr. Adam Bad, everybody. Adam Bad. Hi, Tom. Hi, mate. Thanks for doing this again. I really Pleasure. appreciate it. You joined me at the end of 2016. Remember that year? Yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> it was like a very long time ago. It was. It was a wonderful year with wonderful events that happened. Um, are you glad that 2019 is over? Are you glad to see the back of this year? Yeah, um, there's a, sort of a couple of high points, but a lot of things that have happened that I think people wish didn't happen, and yes. I think people are looking forward to a chance to just have a break, have yes. a break from politics, have a break from everything. What's your read on Scott Morrison? <laughs> Let's get into it. Come uh, on. Uh, he makes a lot more sense when you realise that quiet Australians is a command. Um, <laughs> the, like, I think... You he, will be quiet! <laughs> He's, um, uh, I, I don't think he expected to win, right? I don't think he expected to win. And so for the first period after the election, they were really treading water, dragging out old bills, etc. And so I think there was this period of like, people wondering, oh, which way is he going to go? What's he going to be like? And I think he's chosen to model himself on, um, I don't know if he can say it this way, but modelled himself on John Howard but without the charm, if that's even possible, <laughs> right? And... Well, you so, know how we all love John Howard's charm. <laughs> that was great. And yes. I, and, well, I think he's, he's, he's decided that um, being a daggy dad is going to be his shtick, and I think he's trying to um, pull off the idea that if he can just be this kind of goofy guy, then he can get away with whatever he likes in Parliament. Mm. And um, so we've seen some pretty bad stuff happen in the second half of the year, and he just goes out and says, oh, it's all OK. Yeah. And... I think he's more absent father than daggy dad, but like that, he's like he's like that's that's going to be his shtick, right? Yeah. I think, and so he's kind of a quiet Trump, and I think he's he's going to um, spend the next couple of years, I think, 
kind of dangerously taking Australia away from some of the things that we kind of... You just took for granted that whoever, whoever had won government, you just imagined that there would be some basic things around transparency, around accountability, around, you know, you just answer some certain basic questions... I think people used to think that those things would just would be there no matter who was in power, and I think he's going to try Trump style um, to steer us away from some of that, which I think is really worrying. Well, he's not going to succeed because we've got people like you and the Greeds calling him out. There's a story today about him saying he's not going to f- pay the firefighters anymore. Like they're fighting, they're exhausted. That the firefighters in Australia shouldn't be professionalised and that the volunteers should be given a relief. And Green Senator Marine Faruqi retweeted that story, which just said, just fuck off. <laughs> that was... Which I'm kind of into. I want a little bit more uh, of that. I think she says what a lot of us are feeling. <laughs> <laughs> she speaks for all of us. Okay, so 2016, we did have Donald Trump elected. We had the Brexit moment. Uh, there was kind of vaguely um, encouraging news on the Australian front in that, you know, the um, coalition's majority was reduced to just one seat. And we were sort of reflecting on that in the podcast in 2016. Uh, obviously, things have gone a different way over the past three years. How do you think we've gone as a left-wing movement, left-wing politics in the past three years since 2016? Well, I actually think a, a lot of people will say, well, look at the election result. It was meant to be the climate election. It's, um, we've got Morrison re-elected. Uh, we're, we're in trouble. I actually don't... I'm a bit more optimistic than that. Um, and I think that we still have... We're still one backbench scandal away from having a tied vote on the floor of Parliament, right? If one seat changes hands in this Parliament, then we have tied votes. So we're... um, uh, And I think part of the reason that the election result, for those of us who wanted to see a change of government, felt so bad was that the expectations were so high that there was going to be a change, and so it felt like a long way to fall. But when you actually look in the cold light of day at the numbers, then, like, it's still very tight. It's still really, really tight. And... um, on the uh, uh, climate front and so on, like, uh, Morrison had to pretend to care about climate change going into the election and pretend to accept that it was real and, and you know, even accept that it had something to do with fires but instead say, um, but it's, look, it's all right, I've got it under control. Now, it's becoming incre- increasingly apparent that he hasn't got, a, got it under control and we can talk more about it later, but I think the... Um, the mindset in Australia has, has massively shifted. And I think part of that is because of the way we started the year. Like, people saw, um, you know, they were digging mass graves for fish, right? And millions of fish dying in our rivers. We've seen record drought. We've, we saw parts of Tasmania start burning that hadn't been burnt before. Like, they're not used to... They're not the kind of forest that, that's used to um, fire to regenerate. It's, it's forest that's been there since Gondwana land. Um, and all of a sudden, I think that there was a there was a bit of a shift in the mindset, and people realised, oh, a lot of these things that people have been talking about is actually happening now. Climate's not something that's going to happen in the future; it's actually happening now. And so, I think we've actually, for those of us who are campaigning for equality and for um, climate action, actually shifted the dial a lot. And um, he now has to pretend to care about those things. He has to pretend to care about Medicare, right, for example. He has to pretend to care about climate change. And um, although they're going to still continue over the next few years to try and dismantle it, um, things have actually shifted. I think in, in like, the centre of Australian politics, you might say, has actually potentially shifted towards the left despite the election result. Really? Yeah. And like, See, I, I mean, that, that a... is extraordinarily optimistic. I mean, in 2016 at this... At this um, uh, and I appreciate it, but, like, in, in the podcast, you were, like, predicting another sort of potential power-sharing arrangement, like, between Greens and a Labor government. Obviously, 
everyone, myself included, thought that Labour was going to win, and it's kind of insane that they didn't. And I mean, we, we I think we have to chart up the 2019 election as a, as a serious loss. No, we we do, but um, I think that the Labour Party is taking all the wrong lessons from it, though, right? And uh, there's this idea that oh well, Cole swung it and was swung it in all those seats in Queensland, but when you actually look at those seats, what happened was that the Liberal vote or the LNP vote barely barely went up. It might have gone up a little bit, might have gone down a little bit. What happened was that a lot of Labor voters went over to One Nation, right? And their preferences then came back to the Liberals. And um, why did that happen? Well, I think it happened in large part because Clive Palmer spent $60 million on advertising. And there's all this talk, oh, Bill Shorten's the most unpopular election uh, opposition leader that we've had and so on. Well, yeah, you know, probably anyone would be if you had $60 million spent saying you're the worst person in the world, right? And that's... Clive Palmer basically took the Liberal Party talking points, spent $60 million. That's, from my understanding, that's more than Labor and Liberal combined on the whole election. The blanket-to-blanket coverage just attacks on Bill Shorten. And so... um, in terms of how, yes, we chalk it up as a loss, of course, but I think the answer isn't that everyone's got to all of a sudden embrace coal. The answer is we're to get the money out of politics mm. and work out how we do that. That's, that's the lesson that I don't think is being picked up. So, yep, a loss, but why did it happen? I think you can, you can put 70% of the loss down to Clive Palmer. I feel like Bill Shorten was unpopular before Clive Palmer started writing ads about his unpopularity. Yeah, but Tony Abbott won. Like, you know, Tony Abbott... <laughs> Tony Abbott won an election and he was never popular before he got elected. And so you can... um, And there's a school of thought that says that when you're the opposition leader, you spend all your time attack, attack, attack. So, of course, you're going to be potentially a bit more unpopular unless the other person has completely stuffed up. You're always going to have that sort of hanging hanging around your neck a bit. Um, But um, what... Sure, Shorten might have been unpopular and there might have been doubts about him where he stood on, on particular issues... Um, but I guess my point is that that kind of stuff is always there. Palmer was able to just take a whack of cash and have saturation advertising um, to amplify that and turn it into the kind of thing that changed people's votes. I mean, he even... I don't know if you know, you know where... Uh, on Alexandra Parade, there's the, the snooze betting shop there in, um, the, in the, the middle of the electorate of Melbourne. Uh, during the election campaign, I had one big billboard up there and Clive Palmer had the other one. Like, he, he wasn't going to do that well in Melbourne, but still he was spending up big. In, he was spending up big everywhere. There were billboards everywhere. There was advertising everywhere. He just decided that he was going to buy an election and I think he got away with it. Right, so what we need to do is seize all his money and redistribute it to people who need it, right? Yeah, or... I've become a socialist in the past three years, by the way, everybody. <laughs> I think people have probably bored listeners to the podcast of this process. That's where I've arrived You got some at. cheers from the audience. Yeah, there. I'll take I it. Yeah. Socialist in? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> Never enough. But there's, you know, short of... Um, uh, short of Tom seizing the means of production and becoming Supreme Commissar, like one thing that we could do in the meantime is just say, look, no matter who you are, you can only donate $1,000 a year to any political party um, per year and then do what they've done in some other states, which is tighten the tap at the other end, which is... Um, put a limit on how much you can spend during an election, right? And then all of a sudden there won't be the incentive for anyone to go to the big corporate donors and say, give us money. Because then you, when you go and ask for the money, then you effectively um, 
well, yeah, they, they can call the tune in lots of respects. If you're, if you're a coal company giving the Labor Party money, then they're going to expect a return for that. And um, if we can limit the amount... We can say, yeah, you can give money, but it's only 1000 bucks, and limit the amount of money that anyone can give, then I think we go a long way to getting money out of politics and we stop a repeat of what, we've just, uh, what we just saw this year. I want to get more into the nitty-gritty of uh, both the 2019 election and uh, climate. But on socialism... <laughs> are you a socialist? Uh, I certainly, I certainly was in my twenties. I certainly <laughs> was in my twenties, and I think what um, happened, man? Well, out, it's bro. like if Sorry. I can, <laughs> you know, to paraphrase someone else. I think if you're not, if you're not a socialist in your twenties, you haven't got a heart. If you're not worried about global warming in your forties, you haven't got a head. Yes, and well, no, um, that's not the original quote. That's the original not the quote original is, quote. If you're not a conservative by the time you're fifty, you don't have a yeah, head. Yeah, that's right. Which is fucking and bullshit. Because like, Noam Chomsky seems to have hung on to his radicalism. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a saying that conservatives say to make them feel less guilty about the fact that they don't have a heart anymore. My, my point is that I think that the... For, for me, there's two things that are core to politics at the moment. They've got to be core to politics at the moment. And um, one is tackling inequality. Like, we have got inequality at record levels, including in Australia, and we're now in a, a position where the eight richest men, and they're all men in the world, own the same as the bottom half of the whole world's population, three, three and a bit, three and a half billion, um, whatever it is, like the, the top eight people. And like that, that sounds obscene, but it actually wasn't even that obscene like a few years back. A few years ago, it took 26 billionaires to own the, the, the same as the bottom half. But So it's getting worse, right? So we've got an inequality crisis, but... The second thing that we've got is a massive climate crisis, a climate emergency. And for me, the most important... I think the two need to go hand in hand, um, tackling inequality and tackling the climate crisis, which is why I'm a big supporter of a Green New Deal and pushing for a Green New Deal to tackle both. Um, But for me, look, there's going to be a lot of people who want to tackle the climate crisis who are not necessarily socialists, right? And for me, the important... And I think that's fine, right? And I think there will be some there are people who are socialists and there will be people who aren't because, because I think um, if, if we don't get either of those things under control, either the inequality crisis or the climate crisis, um, then, then we're in for a really hard time and our kids are in for a really hard time over the next few decades. So for me, solving the climate crisis through things like a Green New Deal is probably the most important thing at the moment rather than saying I'm an ex. I'm a, like, well, no, and that's not me distancing myself from people who say they're socialists, you know, I'm just saying that that, for me, is not the most important question in Australian politics at the moment. Well, it's it's not an end in and of itself. I don't want you to declare your socialism for the sake of, like, being on the team or whatever. It's about... I mean, the thing that's convinced me is is an analysis, a critique of all the problems that we keep talking about again and again and again, and the underlying factor being the profit motive and capitalism and the economic system that, that, that leads to all those things, Right. And I, I just feels it feels to me like looking around the world, looking, and we'll see what happens with Corbyn this week. I go in, in a couple of days, but you used for the many, not the few, on that billboard. By the way, yes. I think you owe him money. <laughs> it's a great slogan, but like, but that was it is a perfect slogan because it sums it sums up exactly how a politics should work, and it sums up as a socialist ethos. And I'm I, I I'm not quite sure why people, particularly in this country, are, are much less reticent. To embrace that label and that analysis, um, uh, Lee Rhiannon in the Greens certainly did identify as a democratic socialist. I put this to R- Richard Di Natale on um, 
my podcast earlier this year, and he sort of was uh, worried about the labels. He said, I think what happens is you often end up with this argument about capitalism versus socialism. I don't think those labels are very helpful because people are talking about different things. I think it's more useful to talk about what are your goals and what are the tools that you're going to get there. Um, and while the Greens are obviously for economic equality and redistribution, you know, this, this sort of advocate for strong government regulation of capitalism. And I guess the socialist critique is that if you have that system, the, the regulations will inevitably just be unwound and beaten and hacked away by neoliberalism. That's how it works. Yeah, well, I think... Um, I mean, I agree with the, that critique of neoliberalism and I think that... Um, neoliberalism has done a lot of damage and has turned has made people feel anxious and anxious about the basics of life. Like, you know, you shouldn't graduate with a small debt. You shouldn't um, go and not be able to find an affordable house because we've turned housing into a stock market. Um, uh, you shouldn't like like we're, we're entering a world where. Uh, doing the right thing is no longer enough, right? You can do all of those things and you still have this, this world of just massive insecurity and it, people are being forced to be anxious. Like, I'm, I don't actually want more choice in my electricity provider, right? <laughs> you know, I want, I want to know that electricity is being run as an essential service on a not-for-profit basis, right? And so that I'm getting it as cheaply as possible. This idea that everything has to be turned into a commodity and that I'm not... Uh, um, a passenger, I'm a customer who's urged to maximise their travelling experience, like all of that is like that's neoliberalism and it has um, like as well as eating away at our pocket it eats away at our souls as well and it has turned people into, it splits people apart from each other, from the natural world and it's a large part of the reason that we're in the mess that we're in now and one of the things that I've said a couple of times without being too glib about it is that climate change has arrived at the wrong time, in a sense. And, you know, like, <laughs> well, if it had arrived back in the 1930s, like, we'd say, oh, we need a new deal to respond to this. Or if it had, if it comes sort of post-World War II, it's like, oh, well, we need, you know, the equivalent of this big global plan where we're all going to get together and we're going to... But now everything's about markets. Let the corporations decide. And, like, you've got to decide as an individual and if you don't... Um, organise your own life, well, it's your own fault. I'm sorry if you end up in debt and without enough money to retire on, that's your own fault. Like, that's the logic now, right? That's the logic now. And um, it's wrong and it has to be overturned. It has to be overturned. And it's getting in the way of a proper response to climate change, I think, because we don't think about governments as acting for the many, like they act for the few, right? And so instead of governments acting in the public interest, they act for the fossil fuel lobby. And, like, even if it means that our country literally burns. And so I think taking... Um, and that's why I'm a big supporter of the Green New Deal and the, the, like the Bernie Sanders approach and the AOC approach of saying, let's get government back to being about the public interest and if people don't have decent jobs or decent incomes, then that's... That's a that's something that's wrong. Like it shouldn't that should be not that shouldn't be a, a feature of our society. That should be treated as a bug that we can fix. Mm. I mean, Bernie Sanders and AOC are both democratic socialists. <laughs> I just what, what sure. About... I mean, I, I'm I'm not I'm not. I guess what I'm um, I think there's. A... Do you think there's a political cost to publicly identifying? No, as I think it's socialists? I think it's the opposite. I think it's that often people can think that claiming a certain identity um, can absolve from doing the hard work of politics. Mm. Right? And, and what politics is about at the moment is actually doing um, 
getting together enough people to say we've got to make some change in this country and it'll only be like it'll be people power that is going to be necessary to make the change and I guess I want to say and reach out to people to say I don't mind if you call yourself a socialist, I don't mind if you call yourself a democratic socialist, I don't mind if you call yourself um, someone who's concerned about climate change or if you, you call yourself an ecologist. Like at the moment that is not the most important question in Australia. The most important question is that those of us who want to tackle inequality, mm. whatever you call yourself, and those of us who want to stop the climate emergency need to come together and demand a Green New Deal and demand that we deepen democracy and deepen equality and fight for a safe climate. I mean, it's interesting. Max Chandler Mather, Mather? Yes. is that how you pronounce his name right? So he was the Griffith candidate for Greens uh, in Queensland. He had a 7.2% swing to him, got a primary vote of 24.2%, which is a pretty high Greens primary vote, not as high as yours. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But the Greens Senate in Queensland, the Senate vote went up this election too as well. So for all the chat about, oh, Queensland is a backwater or what have you, that, you know, there is this change. And Chandler Mather's uh, uh, campaign was explicitly, well, or at least, you know, throughout his political commentary and the kind of things he's saying, he's certainly embracing that um, uh, democratic socialist label. Here's him writing in 2018. The Greens and the broader left have as yet failed to articulate a clear break with the economic consensus. He's talking about neoliberalism. This break can't be returned to 20th century social democracy, but instead must take stock of contemporary economic and social conditions and forge a new path. If the left wants to win, we need to capture the joy and hope of a new economy and society and deliver a message that speaks to people both emotionally and rationally. It requires tackling head-on the basic common sense of our current economy and society and being prepared to cop enormous shit from the mainstream media for doing so. And he sort of points to Jeremy Corbyn as demonstrating the UK an unashamedly modern socialist program can and will inspire millions of people, providing the spark of hope needed to create a new type of politics and, with some luck, a new and better society. I think that's pretty good. No? Yeah, I, and I, I agree yeah. with what he's saying there. I guess I would also say let's have a think about the Australian context, though, and look at what, you know, in the, look at US, look at Bernie Sanders. I know you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn. Let's look at Bernie Sanders. Like, basically, they're campaigning for Medicare, Right, they're campaigning for many. We've got it, right, and so part of our job is to now defend it and deepen it, like make make it available for dental care. Like, why isn't it why isn't it available for dental care? Um, there in and UK is a different situation, but in the US, like inequality is so deep in the US that they're actually campaigning for a bunch of things that we take for granted. And so, but they're what, the greatest country in the world. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that, that, that everyone living there thinks that, right? You know, and it's <laughs> yeah, the like not if you, if you do the outrageous thing like have a baby and find that all of a sudden you've got to find thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars to cover the medical bills. Like, like it's just crazy. And um, I can't believe you're defending it, Tom. Um, and <laughs> the, I'm not well. <laughs> oh, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll come to that in a moment the, about um, how you're a traitor to this country. <laughs> <laughs> but the... Um, uh, but the um, so I, I think my point is that in Australia, I think we there's a there's a bunch of those things. This is what I mean about the sort of the 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 the, the, the fight that we're all engaging in is actually in many ways winning. Like when the just think about this, it's the equivalent of the Republicans. Like the election we've just had is the equivalent of the Republicans saying we are going to legislate to protect Medicare for all, and anyone who thinks we don't want. Medicare for all is crazy. Like you know, that's that's what we've got here in Australia, and that's what I think we need to defend. So I agree 100% with everything that that Max is saying. All I would add to it is that we've already got. Um, whilst I don't think going turning the clock back to say we've just got to 
have social democracy over again or the social welfare state over again is, um, uh, is going to be very exciting politics. We've also got to defend all the things that we've got, like some of those good things that we've got, and we can't take them for granted because they're pretty hard won. Mm. Do you think Corbyn's going to win? Um, it's, I think, well, from having looked at the... Um, looked at, I've looked at a couple of the poll, opi- uh, published opinion polls that are running. Um, uh, I was feeling pretty good until I saw um, Boris Johnson's Love Actually ad today. I don't know if you've seen it. No. But it's, uh, it's, it sounds uh, fucking great. <laughs> So, you know Love Actually, right? The, the carol singing scene, right? Where he just turns up. Yeah, I know, it's going to ruin it for you forever. Um, he, where he just turns up and um, turns up at the door and says, Shh, you know, tell them it's carols. And he puts the carols on the thing. Like, it's him. And there's a couple there that looks kind of like the Love Actually couple, a bit older. And it's basically him um, holding these signs saying, basically about Brexit, saying, like, we've had enough of it and let's get it done. And, like... I actually watched it for three minutes. It's like, he is... And it's like, that made me think, well, maybe this guy's going to win. Um, but but, but um, like, the polls are tightening, right? Like, uh, the Tories started with a big lead and Corbyn's, like, coming back. And so it's if, if they can keep the momentum up and it falls in the right seats, then I think he could be the Prime Minister in a minority parliament, mm. um, if that's the way the Lib Dems go. And I think the Lib Dems would probably have to because mm. otherwise they're voting for... Voting for Brexit, um, so I I don't know. I think I think he's in with a chance. Should hmm. be pretty exciting, I reckon. Yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> Bet you Boris hasn't even seen Love Actually. I'm sure, like he's even watched it. Um, did you watch ABC's Australia Talk survey a couple of weeks ago? I didn't watch it, but I saw some of the reporting online about him. So I just want to briefly go through this because to me, this was like the best news that I saw this year in, in terms of like. You know, all the dearth of hope after the 2019 election. This made me feel good about the country that we live in and the possibility for left-wing progressive politics. All right? If people don't know, Australia Talks, ABC talked to 55,000 Australians across the country. Right? Now, that's, that is a massive data set. News polls about 1,000 people. Um, when, so whenever you, saw, you see news polls published, that's the kind of database they're using. University of Melbourne was involved. It was weighted and balanced to get people across the political spectrum and to reflect the Australian demography. Like, it's, it's you know, decent stuff. So when people say oh, I think Australians think this, they're talking out their ass. this is actually the closest thing we have of late to sort of get this kind of understanding of where Australia is at. Um, they ask people, what do, you, what do you consider a problem for Australia? Household debt, 90% of Australians. 90% of Australians think cost of living is a problem for Australia. 83% think poverty is a problem. Wealth inequality, 81%. The economy, 80%. Unemployment, 80%. Treatment of Indigenous people, 75%. Racism, 75%. Terrorism was at 37%, immigration at 27%. 76% of Australians agree that the wealth gap is too big. That's 93% of ALP voters, 94% of Greens, 57% of Liberal voters, and 70% of One Nation voters. 60% disagree that poor people get looked after and think the government could do more to help them. 82% of respondents said they believe Australians are discriminated against occasionally or often on the basis of social or economic class. So you've got all that, right? You've got the reality of living in late-stage capitalism and what it's doing to people and the way the economy's working for people and how people know it sucks, right? But then you've got the freaky neoliberal ideology which says 69% of Australians believe if you work hard, you can be successful no matter your circumstances. 50% agree that in Australia, anyone who works hard enough can get out of poverty. 
And that's nearly three quarters of coalition voters and more than two thirds of One Nation voters agree with that sentiment that if you work hard enough, you can get out of poverty, right? So, I mean, like, that's, that's like the, the, the vibe of the, of the country at the moment out there, um, which to me sort of speaks to a, a political reality or at least an opportunity for people who are answering or trying to provide answers that's different to the neoliberal status quo that we have. So that's good news for you, I feel like, yes. and for yes. all of us, yeah. Uh, Australia talks, also talked about loneliness. 31% of Australians say they're lonely. 18 to 24-year-olds are the loneliest age bracket, and the loneliest electorate in Australia is Melbourne. Oh. Is everyone all right? <laughs> no? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, why do, you think, why do you think you're the representative of the loneliest electorate? This, this is... I think this supports what I was saying before about where the kind of the guts of the country is at the moment. And, like, that first... I think it's no accident that first stat, stat that you read out was about household debt. Like mm. that's, I presume that that was the highest or right up there at the top. Like, this is what neoliberalism has done. It has forced people into debt... It is like a lot of that is household debt, but a lot of it's also education debt. Wages have flatlined, and they've got no way of getting out of it because all of the old levers that one might used to pull to increase wages have been taken away because that's no longer what we do under neoliberalism. So um, they're stuck in this situation. The gov- the people, the neoliberals are stuck in this situation where um, they they just keep thinking, oh, well, all we need to do is lower interest rates and lower interest rates, and that'll fix it. And it's like, no. Even if you put more money into people's pockets by tax cuts at the moment, it's going to go to pay off mortgages or it's going to go to pay off hex debts. Like, it is... Like, people are doing it tough. And the, the, it's not just that people are feeling like that. The data bears it out. Like, household debt is at record highs. And um, it's... People are having to borrow to make ends meet and any extra cash you give them goes straight into paying down debt. And when you're in debt, you don't feel free, right? When you're in debt, you don't feel like you can live your full life. You're under pressure and you're constantly just trying to pay back that debt. And that is intentional. That is what neoliberalism is all about. That's how you create a population that um, can't, li- can't always afford to lift its, lift its eyes from having to look immediately in front of it because you are trying to service that debt and make, make ends meet. And I think people have had enough. Like, people have increasingly had enough of that as, as a way of running our country. And I think the second part of it is that... But nonetheless, people still do believe that Australia is a relatively egalitarian place and that people do get looked after and that if you work, you can get looked after. Um, but those... Yes, those two things are, are intention, but I think... Um, like there is, I think, a real scope to challenge that challenge neoliberalism, and that's because people are feeling like that. I think that's part of what leads to loneliness. And like you, um, it, every when everyday life becomes insecure, and you're working so hard to make ends meet. Like M- Michael Kirby, who I've got amazing respect for, former judge Michael Kirby, was out there saying the other day, "Oh, students need to get more radical." And like, he's probably right, but actually, students are probably working, like doing their study full-time and then going and working 35 hours in a casual job where they've probably got to do a few unpaid internships to get f- for it mm. in order to earn enough money to go and pay for a shared bedroom and a mouldy flat so they can get up at 6am the next morning and do it all again. Yeah. And that is increasingly why I think people are feeling more and more isolated because there's less time to, to do that kind of thing. And also there's less sense that if we come together we can change anything. People are feeling a bit disempowered and part of our job 
as politicians who want to change that is to say, no, come together, we can change things. And there's just this absolute dissatisfaction with the corporate sector, right? The top three united uh, issues that Australians agree on. 90% of Australians believe that big business care more about profit than they do about what's best for Australia. Okay, that was 90% of Australians, including 82% of Liberal voters. 62% of people believe that employers will exploit their employees if they think they can get away with it. And 59% of people disagree that when businesses in Australia make a lot of money, everyone benefits, even the poor. Right? Like, it's just, we fucking hate these people. (laughs) And so when you see post-election Labor going, oh, we're going to move away from this big end-of-town rhetoric, you kind of go, no! Yeah, that's what I mean. I, th- I think there's a complete... Well, I mean, one of the things that sort of I've learnt being in this job is there's, there's the thing that happens and then there's telling the story about the thing that happens. And often the second one is just as important as the first one. And so we had the election result and then there was this scramble to explain what it was and that, that led to the election result. Um, and I think it's... I've said, I've said what I think it is. I think it's too much corporate influence in Australian politics that allowed big millionaires to buy the election. Um, but immediately afterwards, everyone said, oh, well, it was because they were too radical and so on. And I think that that line's been swallowed. I think that line's been swallowed. And, like, unless you've got the guts to stand up, then it's easy to swallow those kind of lines and accept that kind of story. And I think, you know, Anthony Albanese's off tomorrow to visit a coal mine and um, to say that that's that's going to lead us forward and that's, that's the way to, you know, stop Sydney being shrouded in smoke. And so, like, the... Like it, I think the stories that they've all told themselves after the election, I, I think, are just basically the wrong ones and ignoring exactly what you've just read out. Mm. Just this last point on the, on the talk survey. Uh, 82% of LNP voters believe Australia is the best country in the world. Respondents who voted green in the last election were the only group who did not, on balance, agree with that statement. <laughs> Just 46%. Everyone else was off in New Zealand. I think that's <laughs> what it was. Do you think Australia is the best country in the world? Oh, sure, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's, it's... It's a stupid fucking question, and it doesn't matter, and it's ridiculous that it's well, still but a topic no, I of conversation. Think it's, I, I think it's... Like, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to travel a bit um, in a way that my kids might not get to do, and... I don't know, I hope they will, but um, uh, who knows what, what kind of future's in store for them. And there's... I'll come back to what I said. Like there's, I actually think you, you can like the place you live without having to be nationalistic about it, right? Yes. And like, I think we have some really good things here that are... Like, I love the country that we've got and want to preserve it, and I like the fact that still you can... Like, my, my kids have got sick. I've taken the kids to the emergency ward about three times, and... Like, it's not fun, and you do it, and you go through, and they get looked after, and they come out, and they're okay, and you don't get a bill at the end of it. Like, that is amazing, right? That is pretty amazing to live in a place where you can get looked after if you get sick, if there's an emergency, and you don't you don't get sent a bill. You don't have to worry about how much money you've got in the bank. And so I think there's some things that, that yes, really do love about here, but what worries me about that kind of nationalism sometimes is that it's... Like, it can lead to a, oh, well, if you don't like it, leave, kind of ne- Yeah, approach. the implication is that nothing needs to change. If yeah, we're the best country right. in the world, then we're, we're crushing it and uh, we should just carry on as that's, it. That's exactly right. And I think it's just, like, uh, I think... Like, look, I mentioned New Zealand, but look at New Zealand. I reckon there's a lot of people in Australia who'd like to be living in New Zealand at the moment. And, um, uh, uh, you know, again, like, my goodness, imagine having a head 
a prime minister who decides to give a press conference during a natural disaster and explain what the government's going to do about it. Like, wouldn't that be a shock? And so, we're like... <laughs> Ooh, well, a little bit I don't of, know. Like, I think there's, like, there's, there's a lot that's good about other places as well. Okay, so, I mean, my other question here is, like, you know, why did Labor lose the 2019 election? So, you're looking at the Clive Palmer ads uh, and that, that influence of corporate money. You don't think it was because of a, a radical agenda or, or what have you, or, or that they tried to do too much? No, the only the one, the only one thing that I would add to it that, that Palmer was able to feed off and that Morrison fed off was um, the stuff around redistribution of wealth for franking credits. Like that, that um, for them to be able to turn it into a retiree's tax, that's what the others did, and then campaign on that, people who... Would, would never have been entitled to a franking credit in their lives were voting coalition because they were worried that they were going to somehow lose, right? It's actually, it happened. Right? And, and the coalition just ran, um, together with Clive Palmer, a very effective scare campaign on that front. And so perhaps that could have been managed a bit better. Um, but I don't think it was... And I think Labor had some good policies going to the election. Like, they... Um, they we really wanted to wind back, for example, negative gearing and capital gains tax to stop, stop rewarding people who've already got three or four houses. Like, let's just... We, we don't need to spend a couple of billion dollars a year rewarding that. Like, we can spend that money building new affordable houses instead. And Labor had a sort of halfway house version of that policy, but that was certainly better than anything they've ever, ever taken to any election before. Um, and I think that stuff played actually reasonably well. Like, people heard that heard the argument and thought, yeah, good. Like, and it, come, it fits in with all the other stuff that we said before. But I think the franking credit stuff, the, their opponents jumped on that and spun it against them. So when you say manage that better, you mean tell the story and justify it better, explain what you're doing for, or, or have, have a bigger target or have a you know, redistributive policy that's actually hitting the big end of town um, as opposed to potential retirees who, you know, I mean, you could... They did. They really pulled out sympathetic stories of people who had franking credits and sort of said, I'm not that rich and here's, here's the deal, yada, yada, yada. And it was actually quite a technical uh, issue to get your head around, into, whereas, you know, obviously if you're closing loopholes or seriously uh, increasing taxes on the top 1%, it's much simpler to get your... Yeah, I agree. Around. And I think that the... Um, we could fund... So we... we responsible parliamentarians as we are, the Greens always get all of our policies costed and we always go to every election saying, here's how much it costs and here's where it'll come from, right? So, um, the, uh, uh, which annoys the hell out of the Herald Sun because they've got that magic pudding graphic ready to go every election and they just want to use it next to the Greens but they can't always... They, but, but we stop them from doing it. But what we found is that you could fund pretty much everything that we want to fund to get Australia to 100% renewables, to lift New Start by $75 and youth allowance by $75 a week, to build half a million affordable homes in Australia, basically by winding back, largely by winding back unfair tax breaks for big corporations, right? And you could start with the fossil fuel sector at the moment that get, they get to buy cheap petrol thanks to every one of you. Like, you basically write a couple of billion dollar cheque every year so that Gina Reinhart and co can get a tax refund on the diesel fuel that they've bought to put into their mining trucks, like you're giving Gina Reinhardt a rebate every year. And, like, let's, let's say that they can stand on their own two feet and let's stop giving them those kind of tax concessions that they get at the moment. 
um, start to do things like that, wind back those fossil fuel subsidies, wind back all of the other kinds of concessions that the top end of town gets, make them pay tax. That might be a start. They could pay some tax. Like, whoa, never, whoa, oh, whoa, sorry. whoa. Sorry. Settle uh, down, hippie. <laughs> but, like, but, but the, you don't actually need to ask everyday people to pay more as such, like, if you're prepared to go after the, 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 the top end first and just ask them to pay their fair share. And you do that and you could, you could make Australia an equal place where we switch over to 100% renewables. And reallocate shit. I saw the, the submarines that we're paying money for is going to cost us about $252 billion, I think, like, across <coughs> the yeah. estimates. Yeah, and, like, don't... That's bad. Well, don't, <laughs> don't let them ever say that there's not enough money yes. around, right? Because... Um, you know, they walked out... I still remember seeing Christopher Pine walk out and give a press conference one day. Remember him? Yeah. It's... it's um, uh, the um, walk out and give a press conference one day where he said, um, oh, we've just decided that we're going to lift the spending on... Um, percentage of defence spending to 2% of GDP. And why? Well, that's because what the US is doing and they've asked other countries to do the same and so we're going to do it. And Labor, within a heartbeat, said, yeah, we agree. Now, that was billions and billions of dollars just spent at a press conference with no cost-benefit analysis, no, nothing, right? I'm just going to announce that I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, there's hundreds of billions of dollars less for everything else and more that's going to be spent on defence. Now, if the money is there to do that, why can't we go out and announce that we're going to spend... 4% of our GDP on science, research and innovation so that we set ourselves up to be a world-leading, technologically advanced society like, or, or X percent on education. Like, we can do this stuff. We can do this stuff. It's just a question of political will. And like, it, when we get to the point where, you know, the CSIRO budget is as sacrosanct as the defence budget, then I think we'll have won. <laughs> The Greens vote uh, went up in the 2019 election a little bit, 0.2%, a couple hundred thousand extra jo- uh, votes for the Greens. I do want to uh, point this out. At this uh, podcast we did in 2016, I said, do you think more people are taking the Greens seriously from a candidate point of view? I want someone like Julian Burnside to run for the Greens. Really smart, highly engaged, progressive people have lost faith in running for the major two parties. And you said... I think there'll be more and more people like that, but one of the things I think people like about the Greens is they know what we stand for. It's not a personality-led thing. I don't think you'll ever see us having a star candidate just for the sake of it. <laughs> Did you steal my idea? So, do I get this right? What you say happens? Yeah. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Can you give us a prediction for the next election, then? <laughs> What's going to happen? I will be Prime Minister. Yeah, great. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to rule it. Did you know at that point that Julian Burnside was no, sitting right No, I didn't. I didn't. And, like, I'd worked with Julian closely, have for many, many years. And um, it, was, it was nice to um, get the news that he was going to run. It was like, it was, it was like, when he said it, first of all, it's like, oh, okay, so you just something you're just thinking about. It's like, oh, I've made up my mind. I'm going to do it. It's like, great, fantastic. Because I, I think one of the things... And, and what, what, what got sort of me in the heart about his candidacy was, of course, he continued to advocate for justice for refugees, which is something, right, that we've... Where's your ASRC tin? It's gone. Like, yeah. we've, we've... Like, that especially as we enter a world where climate change hits, like, walls are going to start going up everywhere and I think, like, we've actually got to maintain openness now more than ever to others and... Um, so that spirit and everything that he and many others encapsulate of fighting for 
uh, equality and justice um, is is crucial. But what kind of got me in the heart was that really for him it was about climate change and about saying, I want to make sure that we've got a future. And so I'm willing to... Um, um, cash in my political capitalism it's not not his words but basically he'd been a very strong independent voice on all of this and when you stick your hand up and say I'm going to run for a political party some people say oh okay well you're now a politician associated with a particular political party but for him it's like I think it's so important that I'm going to do this I'm going to put everything I've worked for on the line in order to go and run um, knowing that I might get elected or knowing that I might not get elected and yes. for me that was um, that, that, that was pretty humbling it was pretty good well, he didn't get elected. No, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't he came win. close, but he and he like that Higgins was didn't win. Port Melbourne didn't win. I mean, were you disappointed with the Greens uh, result in this? this oh, election? I would have loved us to have won extra seats. Like I, um, you know, you talk about this being the loneliest, loneliest electron. <laughs> I was sitting next, <laughs> sitting next to Bob Catter for ten years. Come on, <laughs> so the, that's cold, man. The the the. the um, so, of course, it would have been great. Of course, it would have been great to uh, to have more there. And also, because I believe coming back to that shared power thing that we were talking about before, I, I do think that is going to be one of the ways that we get change in this country is through Labor being forced to work with others like, and being sort of pulled back a bit in the other sort of pro-climate change, pro-refugee um, direction. So, it would have been great. Um, we came close. We made uh, Josh Frydenberg put a lot of effort into this, into his seat, and um, I don't know the, the estimates that he spent a million bucks in his seat, which I'm sure you know the people of Kuyong were very happy to receive all those those bags in the mail and caps and leaflets from him telling uh, um, telling them how seriously he takes climate change and um, uh, the um, but um, yeah, we, and it would have been it, it would have been great, of course, to win those other seats, but it's. Um, it's the thing about politics, isn't it? Like you, 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 you got to keep going. You got to keep going, and I, I reckon we'll come back again next time. Um, and I think I feel like at some point, like one's not inevitable. Inevitable number. Uh, we're going to go. We're going to grow. <laughs> so lonely. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the big game. Obviously, we're missing throughout uh, climate. The Australian Talk Survey <laughs> found that climate change was the leading worry uh, for um, Australians. Uh, 72% of respondents said it would affect their lives. This Ipsos, Ipsos poll, for the first time, the environment surpassed healthcare, cost of living and the economy to be the number one concern for Australians in November of this year. In November 2017, it was at 14%. Two years later, 32% of the respondents identified that particular issue. Um, obviously, we're seeing what's happening at the moment with the fires uh, with uh, Sydney uh, and right across Queensland, New South Wales, and Labor doesn't appear to give a fuck, and Joel Fitzgibbon's gone off the fucking deep end. <laughs> he tweeted a photo of himself with Matt Canavan and the World Coal Association Chief Executive, Michelle Manook, saying a good chat about strong future global demand for coal. Peter Garrett was talking about, you know, Labor's losing true believers on this stuff, and, like, they need to sort their shit out, and... Uh, Fitzgibbon says, I don't know where Peter lives these days. I suspect it's not central Queensland, the Hunter or the Illawarra. I'm sure he's not worried about where his next mortgage payment will come from. I support true believers who want well-paid blue-collar jobs for aspirational Australians. Uh, you've got Alfred Albanese supporting coal exports, visiting a coal mine, as you mentioned. I mean, they're just, they're just leaning in 100%, right? Like, this, there, there is, appears to be no hope in the Labor Party in its current formation taking a serious approach to climate change. Yeah, I think for for Labor, climate change is always an optional extra. And but I think the difference between 
Labor and the Liberals is that um, Labor can be persuaded to act on climate change, as we saw, as we saw during the shared power parliament. Now, um, we're all watching with interest what happens next, and it's kind of gutting to see them go down this road. Uh, like it, it really is. I, and um, the, you know, it's not often you say, well, it was good that at least Bill Shorten walked both sides of the street, but <laughs> it's like it seems that Albanese's picking a side now, and it's the same as Morrison. And the problem, like, there's a lot of problems with that, but one is that, like, we're... Like, take when the bushfires, like, haven't I went out and said, um, and I stand by it 100%, that Scott Morrison bears some responsibility for what is going to happen during the course of these bushfires because he has contributed to making it more likely that catastrophic events like this are going to occur. And he has. Like, he's hugged coal. We have coal exports at record levels. Um, we are uh, uh, increasing our pollution and they're thumbing their nose at the rest of the world and he's not even going to attend the climate crisis summit because he was off with Trump and a Liberal Party donor off in Ohio, right? Like, we, we're trying to take him on as denier-in-chief because that's what he is. And we're trying to say, you have us... You, you talk about everything being under control but your targets have us on track for a world that's warmed by three degrees. And what we're seeing at the moment is happening with one degree, right? Imagine what it's going to be like if your targets, if we even meet your targets, let's say we do, that is the world that we're on track for. And um, it's we're doing our best to, to take them on. So we said you're, you bear some responsibility. And it's about time you admitted that there's a connection between coal and global warming and a connection between global warming and... Um, the fires and the drought that we're witnessing at the moment. And, you know, Michael McCormack, um, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, people say, oh, it's the Nats, it's the Greens versus the Nats. Like, no, he's the Deputy Prime Minister. He's the second most powerful man in the country. He came out and did... He came out? Wow! (laughs) Congratulations, Michael! (laughs) You fucking homophobe. (laughs) Sorry, carry on. (laughs) Uh, you can say that, I can't. Um, read the, the editorial. Um, read yeah, the read editorial. And said, oh, this is terrible. There's no connection at all. And how can you say this? And climate change is the only concern of inner city and da-da-da. And so we started we, having, a, having a debate about it in public. Labor came out and took the government side and said, no, I'm serious. Like, they, they, Mark Butler, the climate spokesperson, went on Q&A and said, oh, Adam Ban always says these kind of things. Now it's not the time to talk about it. And then Anthony Albanese came out and said, oh, I'm not going to join in, in all of this. And they basically took the government side because apparently you're not allowed to talk about climate change while the fires are burning. Well, when are we going to be able to talk about it, right? Because they're still burning, right? They're still burning and Sydney is still shrouded in smoke. And so what we're finding now is that we're the only ones who are taking on the government. And Labor's either sitting in the middle or they're going off and joining the government side. And that does not set us up well for the next few years. And if Labor thinks that coattailing the government is their ticket to re-election victory, we are going to have Scott Morrison in power for a very long time. Because it's like the refugees. Like, they think, oh, well, if we don't stand up to them, we'll just have the same policy as them and then it won't it won't be a vote changer it's like no these guys dutton and co 
there's nothing they won't do. They will always find someone else to hit. They're very good at punching down and they will always go further and further to the right to find some... And then Labor, if Labor thinks, oh, well, our only policy is to follow them, then they'll just keep going and keep going and the thing will never end. Same with coal. Like, it was the Adani coal mine last election. Next year... Next election, it might be Clive Palmer's coal mine that's four times the size of it, the least that he got, or, or, or another one that's up there. This, there are going to be grandparents locking on to um, equipment to stop these coal mines being built. There are people who are now saying, I will sit down in the street and block traffic um, and, because, and cause, you know, cause disruption and be part of civil disobedience because it's the only way to get the message through. So if Labor thinks this is going to go away. They are kidding themselves, right? They are kidding themselves. The Labor Review said, Labor's ambiguous language on Adani, combined with some anti-coal rhetoric, devastated its support in the coal mining communities of regional Queensland and the Hunter Valley. And yeah, so their lesson for that seems to be like, oh, we should have just been totally for Adani and dropped any kind of criticisms of coal and any kind of effect that it's having on the, on the, uh, on the climate. Whereas, of course, it's the, it's the equivocation about it, right? So from Labor's point of view, and I've said this before on the podcast, you got the worst of both worlds. Mine, people in those communities didn't know whether they supported Adani, whether it was going to go ahead or not, and whether it, it, if it didn't go ahead, they'd be fucked and left out on the, on the street. They wouldn't have a job anymore. Um, but they're also being told that climate change is a serious problem, right? So, so no offer of any kind of better future and no definitive call on whether they supported the mine. And there's this myth in it all that then when these coal mines get set up, there's going to be jobs, you know, falling down from the sky. There's not. Adani, in order to get its money for this project, has gone out to all its creditors and said, it's okay, we've got a strategy that they call automation from pit to port, right? They're basically going to have robots running it, right, because they can. And... We are seeing that happen with other forms of mining around um, around the country. And when they were on oath, um, Adani was forced to say there will only be 1,400 jobs associated with the whole project, right, over the lifespan. And 1,400, like this talk of tens of thousands, 1,400, because they want to automate the whole thing. And um, I, where I have a lot of sympathy is for the people who are in those um, towns and in those regions because... It, um, uh, yes, I think like unemployment and underemployment uh, are high in many places. They're especially high in regional areas. And so what is needed in those places, and this is where Labor gets it so wrong, what is needed in those places is a plausible jobs plan that offers secure employment that's not in coal mining, right? It can be in some other forms of mining or it could be building a bridge. It could be we'll move a government department up to this area. It could be we're going to strengthen the transmission line so all the maintenance workers are going to get jobs on that. It could be we're going to build a whole stack of affordable housing so everyone will move into construction. Like a, a, a government that care, or an opposition or a party that cared could go in and say, here's a believable jobs plan. And at the moment, um, because they're trying to have it both ways, everyone's saying, well, you're not sincere. Well, Albo just defended the Adani coal mine. He told the Age and the City Morning Herald that progress in the Adani coal mine would depend on its ability to get finance subject to environmental approvals, and the market will determine that. I mean, that is like neoliberalism 101 there, right? Like, this massive uh, environmental catastrophe will be determined entirely by the market's ability to justify whether or not it goes ahead. We're not going to ask a question as a government, as political leaders in a democracy as to whether or not it's going to benefit. What is the point of government? Like, if government cannot... No, I'm serious. Like, if government cannot stop the climate crisis, 
by saying harmful things are now no longer able to go ahead, then what is the point of government? Seriously, what is the point of wanting to be the Prime Minister of the country, as Anthony Albanese does, if it's going to mean presiding over um, an economy that means that Sydney and Queensland burn on a regular basis, or South Australia or Victoria or Tasmania or Western Australia are burning, or we don't have enough water and... Um, farmers, like farming and feeding ourselves is no longer going to be viable. Like Ross Garno did some work on this and he said that if we don't get it under control and stick below the limits that, um, that, that we've signed up to internationally, 92% decline in agricultural productivity in the Murray-Darling Basin. Like it's, it's what's, and we might be witnessing the start of that right now. And so what's at stake is some basics like how we're going to feed ourselves as a country. And you would think... You know, I, I just all the time that they run, um, they often say, "Well, the first duty of government is to protect its people and keep everyone safe." It's like, well, if that's right, then protect us from the friggin' climate crisis. Like, you know, protect us from drought, protect us from these fires. And so, it's it's very very disappointing the kind of that 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 um, the kind of stuff that Anthony Albanese is saying. In fact, um, we're talking about this today. Uh, Anthony Albanese is now saying. Um, no, look, if we don't sell uh, coal to the rest of the world, then someone else will sell it to them, which is, you know, the kind of thing I've heard drug dealers saying to justify <laughs> their activity. Oh, our product's better than theirs. But he even... Hey, if don't, don't smear good, honest drug dealers out there <laughs> with those bloody awful coal miners. Thank you very much. But then it's... <laughs> like, and then he went even further today and said... Um, uh, uh, he said, look, if we don't sell it to them, then they're going to get it from others and others don't have coal that's as low emissions as ours. So, in fact, if we don't sell it, it could actually lead to an increase in emissions in the country. And I thought, who's said that before? Tony Abbott. Like, that was Tony Abbott's argument. We now have Anthony Albanese spouting Tony Abbott's argument. And like, like I said, I come back to the point, I want to spend my time trying to take on and um, get Scott Morrison out of a job because he is a positively harmful man. Um, it just gets harder and harder when Anthony Albanese just starts parroting Scott Morrison's lines. Well, you, you saw the debate, like, at its dumbest uh, over the past, I think it was the last week, when we observed the 10-year anniversary of the Greens voting against Kevin Rudd's CPRS, and you wrote for Jacobin. Perhaps the ultimate in Kant, though, is Labor bemoaning the Rudd scheme defeat, but no longer even supporting a pollution tax despite it being more politically palatable now than ever. If it were reintroduced now, even Labor wouldn't vote for Rudd's scheme. And this is the point, right? They're bitching about how this thing didn't get up 10 years ago, and they won't even have a policy today that's anywhere close as ambitious or support any kind of... Um, yeah, and I, th and I think it, it was a bit of a one-two act. It's like, oh, we'll come in and say how terrible the Greens are, um, and then uh, and hopefully everyone will think it's all the Greens' fault so that next next week we can go away and embrace coal and no-one will notice. <laughs> like that's, I'm serious. I reckon that's, that's, that has been their strategy to date. All right. We're coming towards the end. I want to uh, get a couple of quick questions from the audience in just a sec. Uh, in just a sec. But can you give us a, a, a brief pitch on what you mean by the Green New Deal? I feel like it's a term we hear a lot. Uh, it means different things in different countries, different contexts, obviously. The US is still trying to figure out, you know, trying to work through the policy detail. As an idea, it's been around for quite a while, actually. It's been, been through quite a few permutations and lots of different groups sort of started in the UK. What do you mean when you envisage a Green New Deal for Australia? Uh, tackling the climate crisis and the inequality crisis with a government-led program to make sure that everyone who wants decent work has got it, people have got a, a good income, that 
the nation's efforts are directed towards getting us to 100% renewables and getting new export industries and making sure that we're a society that um, where no one is left behind and that we use our wealth to make sure that everyone gets looked after. So in the way that the New Deal was a way of uh, rebuilding the American economy, you know, after the the financial crisis, uh, a government jobs programming, building things and helping, you know, transition us to a a renewable economy by employing people directly through government jobs. Yeah, and um, we... It costs, at the moment, um, the... uh, I'm sure you will all have all looked at the Australian bond rate today, but it's somewhere (laughs) around... Where are my bond heads at? Anybody? (laughs) Oh, they're shy. (laughs) Somewhere around... um, Somewhere between 1% and 2%, um, which is lower than inflation, right? So... Australian, so now is the time to take advantage of these record low interest rates to invest to build um, a 100% renewable society and an equal society where everyone gets educated and where everyone gets cared for. Like, this is the time. This is the time. Like, we should be getting rid of household debt and instead saying government, it's government can share the risk. Government can borrow much, much more cheaply than households can. Instead of leaving everyone to fend for themselves with the wiles of the market, let's just say, like, government, get back to doing the things that it can do best and invest in these nation-building projects that are about reducing pollution. And, um, like, we've got, we've got a youth... Everyone talks about unemployment, but I think underemployment is just as bad. We've got nearly one in three young people in this country who either doesn't have a job or doesn't have enough hours of work. That is a scandal. And at a time when we need to be building 100% renewable energy as quickly as possible and building lots of affordable homes, let's, let's find ways of doing that. And government should be the intermediary. An example, like Sanders and AOC announced it, a US $172 billion plan to transform public housing in the US into energy-efficient homes, which would create an estimated 240,000 jobs a year. Like, I mean, that's, yeah, transformational kind of... Yeah, stuff. and we, like, we as the Greens, we want to build half a million new public and affordable homes over the next 10 years. And, like, let's, to the extent, you know, wages are flatlining, um, young people can't find work, let's have a construction-led recovery that also solves the homelessness crisis by building affordable homes that are available for everyone that gets young people into work and that gives young people apprenticeships. It just seems to me like a no-brainer. <laughs> Well, there are people with no brains in charge of those decisions. <laughs> oh, I'm catty. I'm on fire tonight. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Adam Band, everybody. Thank you so much, Adam. I really appreciate you doing this for me again. You, oh, a, oh, yeah, yeah, please, that... yes. Uh, very quickly, do we have any questions on the floor that we can very, uh, very quickly get to put to Adam and then we can all um, carry on? Anybody, put your hand up and I'll ask you to yell it out. Sir, down the front, go for it. Will, I'll just repeat for the sake of the recording, will Donald Trump win in 2020? Um, uh, look, I didn't think he was going to win last time. And, um, so didn't I'm, you? Didn't you? <laughs> we all saw it coming. <laughs> I'm, I'm perhaps not the best person to ask. The, um, oh, you know, geez, isn't voluntary voting terrible? Like, it's just because it just means that all he has to do is get out the base and turn out the same base again. And having had a peek inside, and seen some of the stuff that's going on inside his campaign, it's like, oh, they're serious, they're getting ready, like they're beginning now for the campaigns. So um, I, I don't think, though, a middle-of-the-road Democrats candidate can beat him. Like, I think in a context especially where the US system is that you've got to engage people, I, I think they really need someone exciting who's going to go out there and mobilise a bunch of people. That's the chance of defeating Trump. Do you think Elizabeth Warren is exciting? Uh, I think if it's not... 
if it's not uh, Bernie, then I think she's probably the next best bet. Okay. <laughs> That's not very ex- Option B isn't very exciting. <laughs> Well, but you can have more than one exciting person. Like, there's no... No, it's Bernie. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, next week's episode is Charlie Pickering. It's me and him yelling at each other about Warren versus Sanders for about 40 minutes. Yes, sir, up the back. Um, yes, sorry, just for the sake of the recording, uh, we, had, we had a fucking ad. Uh, <laughs> some lefty food venture, <laughs> which I did not approve of. Uh, no, do that, Greg. That's very nice. Um, and uh, Greg from the ACLC was wondering what you thought of Scott Morrison's religious freedom bill. Some announcers were changed today. Uh, it's going to be deferred to the 2020 parliamentary year, but uh, what are you making of this religious freedom, quote-unquote, uh, debate? I haven't had a chance to look at the updates, but the first, the first iteration of it, I, I don't think it's necessary, and I'm worried that it's a Trojan horse for hate and that, like, you think back to why this happened. This bill happened because... Um, during the course of the marriage equality debate, there were a bunch of people who were very disgruntled about the idea that, that we'd remove discrimination from our marriage laws, and so they were given a SOP, which was this bill. And so this bill is designed to placate those people within the Conservatives. Um, they are the people who peddle hate and division, and so I am, um, at the moment... As I say, I haven't seen sort of the latest iteration, but um, at the moment, I think it's a very it's, it's bad, and I think it's about um, entrenching the right to uh, giving people a right to discriminate and do things that would currently be illegal um, on the discrimination front, and I don't think we should support it. Cool, Arkit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Told you they were a tough crowd. <laughs> we're all the same page. Uh, one more, I reckon. Anybody else? One more question, sir. Yep. Is there anything to stop Clive Farmer from buying an election again? No. And um, just let's just change the law to do a few things. One is um, have real-time disclosure of donations so you know immediately where the money's coming from. Like, you can, once it's in the bank account, put it up on the website. Limit the amount of money that people can give to 1000 bucks so that Clive Palmer, like everyone else, can give 1000 bucks but no more. And limit the amount of money that can be spent on elections, which... Um, I'm sure, you know, every school would be happy with because there'd be less bunting around the place and everyone would get a few fewer um, uh, leaflets in their letterbox during the course of an election campaign. Do those things and I think you go a long way to making people like Clive Palmer irrelevant. But at the moment, it could happen again. He's always buying the elections, yes. Then I mean, this is the thing with fucking campaign elect- re- reform. It's like the politicians whose job it is to introduce that law all materially benefit from a yeah, system. Yeah, but even... But, but like, like there's... Um, uh, in Labor, in their review, picked up that, oh, actually, we need to change the law on this front. So they're, they now... Uh, so I don't know what, they, what they're going to take to the next election, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if they'd be sympathetic to changing the law finally. Um, the, the thing that gives me uh, hope on that front, though, is that, um, you know, look at the last... I can't remember if it was the last Victorian election, but there's certainly been a couple of elections in the last few years where the Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph have gone and editorialised and said, don't vote for this person, they're completely horrible and the world's going to end, but nonetheless that person won. And so, like, I feel like in a lot of ways um, 
perhaps Rupert Murdoch's hold on stranglehold on who gets to win elections is slowly slipping from his grasp. And um, you know, if it gets transferred to Clive Palmer, then maybe that's that's not necessarily such a great thing. But I do think that there's um, uh, uh, there's there's an increasing willingness of people to um, to see through it and to see it for what it is. Uh, the, but part of what you know, I mean, I, I don't know. How do you deal with the fact that someone's got a huge amount of money and is going to do it? I guess, well, that's always been the way, like, in a sense. Like, we've always been up against people who've got a lot of money and who write the rules in their favour. And But nonetheless, from time to time, against the odds, we managed to win. And I feel like we can do it again. The correct answer is uh, Clive Farmers shouldn't have a billion dollars because no billionaire should exist. <laughs> there we go. I'm just letting you know. You know, I don't want to patronise you, but I'm just saying that's the correct answer. So... Throw a guillotine in there as well. Anyway, uh, we're going to finish up. We should acknowledge, again, thank you so much for nominating the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Thank you for coming, Greg. That's very nice. Did you buy a ticket? Oh, no. (laughs) See, it all goes back in your pocket, man. It's a corrupt cycle. (laughs) But no, uh, the proceeds will go to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. There is a bucket uh, there as you head out tonight if you have any spare change or whatever and you feel like uh, chipping in a bit more money to that wonderful organisation that is doing fantastic work. In a time in an Australia in which uh, the Medivac laws have been repealed, they've been doing fantastic advocacy for that. Um, refugees, people seeking asylum, uh, yeah, continue to need uh, help, and the ASRC do extraordinary work of providing with that, providing them with community, providing them with legal help, and um, they're a fantastic organisation. So if you can uh, spare any more change on your way out, we'd really appreciate that. Um, Adam, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Have a wonderful break. I'll see you in three years. <laughs> we'll do this shit again. <laughs> And we'll be living in the socialist utopia. <laughs> One more time, everybody. Adam Van, everybody. Give it up for Adam. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Have a great break. I'll see you in 2020. Good night, everybody. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.